Happy Monday, everybody, and welcome in to Bet to Win here at the Blue Wire Studios at Win Las Vegas. I'm your host, Joe Fan. A huge show today. I don't want to waste any time. We've got not one, but two guests. Jonathan Von Tobel of VEASAN is here to recap games one and two of the NBA Finals. The series tied at one between the Warriors and the Celtics as that heads back to Boston. We're going to talk a little baseball as well with Pat Light, former Major League pitcher, who is also a brand new WinBet brand ambassador. Before we get to those interviews, a quick victory lap for your boy is my winning pick, the first winning pick in the month of June, Cashes. I took the Celtics and the Warriors to go over 213 and a half in game one. That soared over to a total of 238. I followed the steam and it led me to the promised land. The Celtics shot 51% from three between the two teams, 40 combined threes. Uh, that game on Thursday, a wild comeback for the Celtics, 40 to 16. 40 to 16. They outscored the Warriors on the road in game one to be down by 12 going into the fourth quarter, to win by 12 in the game and winning comfortably. Al Horford uh, continues his or continued in that game, his tremendous playoff run, his finals debut, 26, 6, and 3. He went 6 of 8 from three point land. Jalen Brown, a big game as well, 24-7-5. and five. On Sunday, the Warriors got even. I don't think anyone was surprised by that. That's why the line was six and a half in that game. Steph Curry, 29-6-4. and four. Uh, Much of that damage happening in a big fourth quarter, or third quarter, sorry, for him. The Warriors win that game, 107-88. Again, evening the series at one apiece. Tatum, big game scoring-wise, 28 uh, for him, but minus 34 and his plus minus the worst ever in the play-by-play era in the NBA. Game three odds, Celtics three and a half point favorites against the Dubs, total of 212 and a half the series odds. Uh, right about even, depending on the, the book, but a win bet, it's minus 115 for the Warriors and minus 105 for the Celtics. Let's continue the conversation with VEASAN's senior NBA analyst, Jonathan Von Tobel. He is the host of the Hardwood Handicappers podcast, also co-host The Edge on VEASAN weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 Eastern. Follow him on Twitter at M-E-J-V-T. Jonathan, appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Excited to, to unpack what's happened so far, maybe what we expect the rest of the way in these NBA Finals. Yeah, anytime. This is uh, I'm looking forward to it. The NBA Finals, uh, the second game wasn't great, but uh, we're finally here after a really long season, so it's cool to finally be playing the games, you know? And I think this is a really fun matchup, and it's exciting that the series is tied 1-1 going back to Boston, but you have two teams that I think match up well with each other in terms of uh, guys who are uh, versatile defensively, a number of different scoring options, capable three-point shooters all across the floor um, on both sides, bet, uh, you know, depth with bench pieces. I know you've been high on the Celtics. I placed a 25-1 to future back in February. Um, is this a team that, that you maybe have, have seen this coming uh, even when things weren't looking super bright for them back in the winter? Yeah, I, I've actually I got a futures on them too. I got them at sixty six to one to win the Woo! NBA Finals. So, we uh, love that. Uh, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm feeling pretty happy that they're at least at this point right now. Um, but you know, probably to your point, like when you're talking about where this team was, you saw some of the changes coming. You you knew that Ime Udoka had shifted Robert Williams' assignments defensively. He was going to become more of an off ball defender as opposed to helping out directly at the point of attack. Uh, you saw that that changed things for them on that end of the floor. They still have their issues in the regular season that are still here today. Their offense gets a little bogged down, but th- this has the makings of a legitimately good championship squad. And you saw the inklings of that 
back in uh, late January, early February. So that's when I got involved in, and luckily, uh, that has continued to transpire all the way through to now a 1-1 series tie in home court for them as they move forward in the NBA Finals. And me, for me, it was the Derek White trade as well was kind of what pushed me. Yep. Because he was, I mean, such a, a reliable bench piece who can handle the ball, handle the point. He can get you a bucket. Uh, he can create for himself. Um, I love that deal. And he was sort of the catalyst, among others, uh, for their turnaround. Are you on Team Hedge or Team Let It Ride? Um, so it depends on the situation. But I will say that um, my confidence has continued to grow in this team as they have gone along. So for this situation... Uh, I am firmly in the camp of Team No Hedge. I, I think they are going to win this series. Uh, you know, one game is not going to deter me off of my series priors. Uh, I think that this is the better team uh, on a neutral court. I rate them as the better team. So I think at the end of the day, I'm going to be holding a winning ticket. So I will not hedge at least this time around. I love that. What are your overall thoughts on games one and two? The, the, the fourth quarter in game one, tremendous for the Celtics. They outscore the Warriors on the road, 40-16, to 16, to not just win, but end up winning comfortably by 12. Um, and then. I think you saw the Warriors come back and say, I mean, you don't want to get too caught up in narratives, but the narrative going in was they're not going to go down 0-2. And they didn't. They blew out the Celtics. I don't know if that game even means a whole lot for a Celtics backer because the mission was accomplished. They now own home court advantage. Um, So I know you still believe in the Celtics, but based on what you've seen uh, in these first two games, is it what you expected or has there been a surprise or two? I think it's for the most part kind of what you expected. I mean, when you look at what has bothered Boston in this postseason and in their issues throughout the regular season, it's been their offense, and namely it's been turnovers. Turnovers have been a really big problem for them. If you look at the Miami series, for example, their turnover rate in non-garbage time minutes in the game that they lost was over 22%. It's really high. You see what happened in game two where they were turning the ball over left and right, allowing the Warriors to get a big lead, score a bunch of points off of turnovers, and they really don't look back from there. So that's not surprising. And on the flip side, you know, I was talking about this the other day, there was a lot of people, like you mentioned, who coming out of game one is like, ah, Boston's not going to shoot like that. Well, why not? Like, this is a team that takes over 40% of their attempts from three-point range, shoots 37% from three, despite taking so many three-point attempts. So this is a team that's lived from the perimeter for a while now, and I don't think it's surprising that when they were getting wide-open looks, which they were, they got 23 wide-open attempts, defender six feet or further away in that game against the Warriors in that fourth quarter, that they were able to take advantage of that. So through two games, I don't think it's surprising. It's not surprising to see that Steve Kerr is a mastermind technician, a tactician who decided to go and make adjustments and change things with lineups, getting Gary Payton out there, running more traditional pick and rolls offensively, slipping screens, doing all sorts of stuff. So I think through two games, this has kind of gone, outside of the results, just what's happened on the court, I think this has kind of gone as you've expected up to this point. How concerned should the NBA be about the blowouts, particularly in the postseason? I don't think it's a hot take to say that these playoffs haven't been super entertaining. I think the best series... You could argue, you'd probably say Buck Celtics, but I would probably argue it was mm-hmm. Wolves and Grizzlies in the first round. Um, there's been a lot of boring basketball, and maybe that's just inevitable because of the volatility of three-point shooting and the volume of three-point shooting. But is it an issue? And you could argue that game one wasn't a blowout, but it still ended up being the last five minutes mostly irrelevant because the Celtics got so hot and the Warriors couldn't buy a bucket. Then in game two, the Celtics get blown out. So I I think you're, you're happy if you're the NBA that a series is tied 1-1, but at some point, you have to hope the league office is hoping for some final few minutes, last-second drama. Yeah, I think this, this is a symptom of how the game is played now, right? When you have a team like Boston, who takes over 40% of their attempts from three-point range, if the shots aren't going to fall in any other area of the floor, 
you're going to get some lopsided results. I do think that from from a blowout standpoint, like you don't like to see like 30 point games, which is what we've seen multiple times here in this uh, in this NBA postseason. But I also think like we as viewers also have to adjust the way that we're looking at these games. You know, in the NBA, like a, let's say a 10 point, 15 point final. It's not as big of a gap as you would think just because of the way the game is played, right? In the course, if you're watching a team and they're down by 15 points in the first quarter, are you going to turn the game off? No, probably not because you know that the way the basketball is played, that they're probably having a really good chance to cut back into that deficit and come back. So I think there's a mix on both sides. I think us as viewers have to realize that, you know, 15-point deficits aren't the blowouts that we think they are. These aren't these really slow-paced games that are going to finish 95-80 anymore, right? These are high-paced games and thus there's going to be more volatility and I think it's just the way the game is being played now, too. So it does stink. And it stinks from a betting standpoint, right? Because you saw a lot of people yesterday because it was a blowout. Guys are getting sat. Prop bets are going under. You're not If you're hitting anything over or you're betting anything over, you're not really going to hit it. So I think it is it is not. I don't think it's as negative as it's being mad out to be. But it's also not a positive at this point right now. I think the game is just changing, you know? This is a conversation I went through before the series started. And I think now that it's 1-1, it's still relevant. Uh, and I will ask you, who are the five best players in this series in order? Ooh, in order. Okay, so I think Steph Curry's got to be number one. Um, we'll go with Jason Tatum, number two. And then you kind of get into that gray area of where you'd go. So for me personally, I would go with Jalen Brown, three. Hmm. They, they, and then you get really in. Okay, how about that? So I'll go Jalen Brown, number three. Uh, I will throw Marcus Smart in at number four. And for number five, I'll go with, you know what? I will go with Jordan Poole. How about that? I'll go with Jordan Poole as the fifth best player. It is interesting because you could go Wiggins, you could go Draymond, Horford based on how he's played in this postseason could be okay. in that mix. And it's interesting you don't even think of Clay Thompson uh, in, in that that way anymore given how poorly he's played and how unreliable he's been from a shooting standpoint. He's not the two-way player he once was. But it is interesting. And that's why I, I, I so badly wanted the Celtics beyond my future, obviously. I'd like to cash that. Mm -hmm. But just from a matchup standpoint, when you have three of the four best players in the series on the underdog in the series, you would like to think it makes for a fun series. Uh, tied at one, you hope it ends up being that. Um, is it a big deal or no deal that Jason Tatum was an NBA record, uh, an in infamous record, minus 34 um, in game two? And, and really quickly, can I add that yeah, uh, please. You, you remind me, it's an oversight on my part. Uh, to leave off Draymond Green. So I'm going to remove Jordan Poole and put Draymond Green uh, above Marcus Smart. So he should be in there for what he does defensively. That's an oversight on my part. Uh, but to your question about, like, with Tatum, I think it's it's a big deal because through two games, he has not played very well. You know, he gets a lot of credit for the assists that he was racking up in game one, but it, he, he still wasn't really good on the defensive end of the floor. If you look at the, you know, the fact that he was missing a lot of wide-open attempts in that game, like, I guess you get some credit for dishing and assisting and doing all that good stuff. But at the same time, he was really poor offensively. And then you come back in this game and you're efficient, I guess, from from an offensive standpoint, but you're that, you know, really bad plus minus you talked about, the worst we've seen in the finals game in the play-by-play -play era. I think it's kind of a problem. Now, I don't think it's a problem as they move forward, but I'll say this, for you and I and other Celtics backers, he needs to be better if they're going to have a chance to win this series. I don't think it's I don't think it's going to affect him going forward. You do worry a little bit because he grabs at that shoulder a lot, and that still seems to be bothering him quite a bit. But I still think I believe enough in him that he's going to be fine and that he'll give them enough uh, that they're still going to be able to win this series. I need to get something off my chest, and I'm curious if you agree with this take or not, but I am beyond sick of the 
Well, if it was Draymond, he would have been ejected. If it was Draymond, it would have been this. I think there was a time where refs targeted him. We are no longer in that time. In fact, I think the pendulum has swung 100% in the other direction because I think Draymond gets more leeway than anybody. And, and to make this clear, I'm a Draymond guy. I, enjoy, I think he's so good for the league. I think there's a reason why he's going to get paid $100 million to be a broadcaster the second he decides uh, that he's done. I love him. I just want to get past the thought that he is targeted by officials because when it comes to arguing with officials and chirping at other players and talking trash and fouls, he gets more leeway. than To me, I kind of compare him to a cross-sport reference the Legion of Boom back in the, the early 2010s yeah. where they just dare an official to make a call. And especially in these big moments in the NBA Finals, he is banking that he can push the limit and toe the line, even cross it a bit and say, hey, I'm going to get into this little scrap with Jalen Brown. They're not going to give me a second tee. And they didn't. And I'm happy they didn't because it's the Finals. And I think there should be a different set of rules in the NBA Finals where in the regular season, it's an auto double tech and Draymond's done. And he's going to record a podcast midway into the game. Um, I'm curious. Uh, that's all to say, let me serve that and pass the ball to you. Uh, do you agree with that take? Is that fair? Um, or am I off base here? No, I think you're right. And like, look, at, look at game two, for example, right? I think it was, was it late first quarter or early second, where he literally just bulldozes through Grant Williams, like from behind, yeah. almost tackles him. And they call it, they call a foul on Grant Williams. They don't call the foul on Draymond Green. They called it on Boston. So no, I'd agree with it. And you're also to an extent like you put yourself in those positions as a player, right? You put yourself in a position to get called for a technical when you're constantly chirping. You put yourself in a position with every single foul that is called. You're in the you're in the ear of an official snapping at him, John at him, saying something. So I would agree with that. Like I love Draymond too. You know, I do local radio out here in Las Vegas and. uh I uh, have a co-host who does not like Draymond Green, and we constantly get back and forth about how great of a player he is. So I, I'm, I'm really, you and I are lock and step on this one. He's a fantastic player. He's absolutely incredible. But at the same time, I think he's got to realize the positions he puts himself in, and, and thus, he's not unfairly targeted. He puts himself in the spot to be targeted. There was a play, I think it was in the third quarter, where he is, it's like a, a power running play, and he's a left tackle pulling through the middle of the key, and Steph walks into a wide open three. <laughs> like, yep. what the hell is going on right now? So uh, I'm glad he we're on the same two page. two guys on that play. Yeah, he did. Uh, I'm glad we're on the same page there. Um, Gary Payton Jr. returns, has some, gives the Warriors nice minutes in game two on both ends of the floor. How big is that an impact on the series? Well, it's, it's pretty big for Golden State. I mean, they were hurting for a little bit better on ball defenders. If you go back to game one, one of the reasons why that fourth quarter happened was because Boston was getting so many driving kick opportunities. You, you didn't stay, you didn't feel comfortable staying at home on shooters because you had to help a little bit because guys were getting beat off dribble penetration, right? Clay Thompson, for example, who we were briefly talking about, when he was the closest defender, Golden State, in, or excuse me, Boston in game one shot seven to 10. So you needed better defensive pressure on the ball. Draymond Green provided it, Gary Payton the second provides it. And so now, all of a sudden, when you're talking about some driving kick opportunities, well, they're not there anymore because you trust a guy on the ball or you trust a dude off ball to stay with his dude and defend and close out with some speed. And that's what Golden State did. And you mentioned it, too, on the other end. Hits a three, looks a little bit more comfortable. But at the same time, like, they used him as a screener in a couple of situations and then rolled. He slipped through some of those switches. Like, he, he provides a really big boost for them. I was really impressed. And 
You saw him grab, like kind of rubbing the elbow, looking a little nervous. It's cool to see a guy come back from an injury like that and have a big impact, but I, I thought he was very impactful for Golden State. The Celtics are an interesting team where in these playoffs, the spread hasn't really mattered. It's just pick the winner. And if you're, if you're a Celtics believer, just blindly bet them money line every game and expect to come out on top because you just it's hard to pick and choose what kind of shooting night they're going to have on a night-to-night basis. The Warriors are a little bit like that, I think mainly because you have no idea what Jordan Poole will give you on a night-to-night basis. He opened up the playoffs scorching hot, putting up 30 points seemingly every game. Then he's gone through a low where he's a, a huge defensive liability. Um, then he goes nuclear in that second half, uh, in that third quarter in particular, ends the third quarter with the, the half-court buzzer beater. He is a wild card that makes every game sort of hard to handicap and forecast. Yeah, it, it seems like it. And yesterday was a really good example of that. He was really impactful. The three that he hit at the end of the first half, where he hits like a hesitation move and then pulls up from the logo essentially and drains it. Like he, he is a, a very, very uh, electric player. We'll put it that way. But it's also what he provides on the other end, right? Or doesn't provide, you put it that way. He, he's a liability defensively. And so if he's not giving you 20 points-ish per game, then you have to ask yourself, like, well, you know, what are we really getting out of these minutes? And that's why I think, like, he's one of the many linchpins in this series. But if Golden State's going to win this thing, it's on him to at least counterbalance his poor defensive efforts with some really good scoring nights. And you got that in game two, but you're going to get that moving forward because the, the thing with him being a good offensive piece, when he's talking about, like, matching up with the Boston Celtics, and if you're hunting for mismatches or whatever it is, he's given up a lot in every single one of those matchups. Marcus Smart is six foot four. Gives up about what he gives about, I think, like 15, 20 pounds, it looks like, to him or, or something like that. And then everybody else is six six or taller and swallowing him up pool with size. So I, I wonder how effective he'll be consistently as the series goes along outside of this outburst he had in game two. Are you betting every game? Do you have a pick for game three? Celtics minus three and a half. The total set at two twelve and a half. Or are you just letting the future ride? No, I've been betting. So I bet Boston in the first two games, and I'll come back here in game three. I want to see what the market does. We, the market has been overwhelmingly supporting the Golden State Warriors. You know, we're talking like well over 70% of the tickets, 80% of the handle or, you know, vice versa. Uh, when it comes to the first two games from a spread perspective, uh, clearly on the market from a series price perspective, it's there. And it's not just the, you know, the public either. There's some respected money that are shaping some of these numbers. Uh, but I, I'm firmly in the camp of, look, the Celtics are the better team in this matchup. I think coming back home again, when you're talking about home court, it has come out to be worth three and a half points. Uh, I make this uh, Celtics team about a two points better on a neutral court than Golden State. That would give you some value on a number like that. I do have Boston from a future standpoint, but if I see value, I'll take it. So I'm going to I'm going to ride with Boston until the market adjusts. He is Jonathan Von Tobel, VSIN senior NBA analyst. Nobody talks hoops better than him. You can listen to on the Hardwood Handicappers podcast as well as the Edge on VSIN weekday afternoons from four to five Eastern. Follow him on Twitter at mejvt. Jonathan. Really appreciate the time, man. It's been a whole lot of fun. Uh, And good luck to our Celtics here the rest of the way. Yes. Yes, for both of us. Uh, Hopefully we get it. Thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. All right, let's shift gears and talk some baseball. Uh, Pumped to have this guy on. He's Pat Light, former Major League Baseball pitcher for the Red Sox and Twins. He is the host of the Sorry We're Closed podcast. And most importantly, the newest WinBet brand ambassador. Follow him on Twitter at Pat underscore Light. Pat, welcome to the show. Again, more importantly, welcome to the WinBet family, man. I really appreciate your time and having you here on the show. Dude, I appreciate the invite, my friend. It's, it's, it's exciting to be a part of the WinBet family now. So this is exciting. You own a series of bars um, out in Hoboken, New Jersey. 
Um, I know you guys can have some some partnerships with WinBet in terms of uh, what's featured in those spaces. Uh, off the top, do you bet? Do you dabble uh, and wet your beak a little bit in the, the betting industry? Uh, you know, I dabble a little bit. I started getting into it a little bit more. Obviously, I wasn't allowed to do it while I was playing. Sure. Uh, sure. But uh, when, you know, I started dabbling a little bit. I went to the Kentucky Derby this year and I absolutely loved it. Uh, and now I'm just still doing a little bit at a time here. Uh, I don't quite gamble as much as my buddies do, but uh, they're helping me along the way as I uh, I get a little better at it. Who was the long shot at the Kentucky Derby again? Like the 80 to 1? Did you have Rich that strike. ticket? Rich Strike. There you go. No, no uh, I didn't. I I bet a lot of money on this one horse because I was told to, and uh, it just didn't work out. Good intel is always really good until it it's until it's not. And yeah, yeah exactly. it's always one where you like, can you go back and like, man, just just put like a hundred bucks on on Rich Strike and how cool would that be? Um, yes. At the top of your Twitter page again, Pat underscore Light, you have your claim to fame, and it's a damn good claim to fame. Uh, striking out Mike Trout during your time with the Red Sox. I think my favorite part of the the clip is. One, you strike him out looking. That's a hell of a story. But the, you see, look at the score. It's, you guys are down 20, <laughs> 20 to 2. The fact that he's still playing the game is hysterical. I think at that point, you're expecting like a position player to be in. But no, that's your moment. You struck him out. What is that? What was that like? And that's pretty cool feather in your cap that, that no one can ever take away from you. You know, honestly, I didn't know how big it was at the time or how much I would make it big. Um because I had already given up about 15 runs. Uh, but uh, looking back on it and making it like my claim to fame, uh, it's, it's comical because I really only have two notable things that happened in my baseball career. It's the strikeout of Mike Trout, and it's the last ever uh, botched intentional walk in Major League Baseball history. Uh, so I have, I have two things for going for myself, and that's about it. So I, I make the most of them. Wait, what happened? What's a botched intentional walk? How do you do that? Did you like leave one yeah, over? You tried to walk guy and you left it over the plate? No, no, no. I threw it to the backstop. Nice. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Now it wasn't great. <laughs> I, I would argue your first claim to fame is better than the second. Um, but both yeah, very so- notable and make for good stories on the podcast. Pat, uh, speaking of the Angels, they're on an 11-game losing streak right now. They just got swept by the Phillies. Trout is 0 for 17 in June with seven strikeouts. Um, how do things change so aggressively for a team that was playing such good baseball? Obviously, they were 10 games over 500. Um, they were one of the best teams in the American League, one of the, the most notable surprises. And now things have fallen so flat. The starting pitching hasn't been good. The bullpen's been bad. And obviously, you look at the lineup with Mike Trout struggling, Anthony Rendon is out. Um, it's been pretty comprehensive with the Angels. How does a switch flip so aggressively with a team uh, in such a short, short span? Well, it's, it's, it's hard to really pinpoint anything. Obviously, it starts with Mike. Uh, you know, Trout is the guy. I think I just saw a statistic yesterday that I think he's like over his last 22, which is the worst streak he's had in his career. I mean, things are going to start with him. If he's hitting the ball well, it puts a lot, it takes a lot of pressure off of the rest of the club. Um, and it takes a lot of pressure off the starting pitching because you're driving in runs. Uh, you have leads, you're working with better. I say the same thing about my, my, my favorite team, the Boston Red Sox. Am I upset that the angels are going on this losing streak while they're about to play the Red Sox in a four game set? No, I'm not upset about it. Uh, but it all starts with your with your core guys. Uh, and for the Angels, it's going to be Shohei and it's going to be Mike. And it's really going to start with Mike in that lineup. And if he, if he struggles, the rest of the team is going to follow suit because there's more pressure on guys that, you know, quite frankly, shouldn't have that kind of pressure on them. So, uh, I mean, baseball's a long season, so it'll go up and down. I expect this team still to compete for a playoff spot. They just got swept by the Phillies. But prior to that, the Phillies had just fired Joe Girardi. They started 22 and 29. 
They remain under 500. Um, they're now back to 25 and 29. Maybe they figure it out and they pull things together and they claim a wild card spot and can make some noise in the playoffs. I don't understand this team because you look at what they're, what's there in the roster. Should be one of the best lineups in all of baseball. There's enough there, albeit not super daunting from a starting rotation standpoint. But even though if you know, if, even if they're not going to be the best team in the National League, they should be in the conversation in every sin, single playoff conversation. And it's always a disappointment with them. Why are they so perennially underwhelming? You know, again, it's it, typically when a team is this underwhelming for a long period of time, it starts at the top. Uh, you have guys, even from a scouting department, uh, from, you know, you talk about the Mets who have been historically bad and, and blow things. Uh, you, you talk about, you know, the strength and conditioning department, which it only has so much power. But when you go to the, to the top, um, this is when those things type, you know, start to happen is when you're, you have poor leadership. Uh, and that's why they got rid of Joe Girardi. Although I think that is, you know, a move that it doesn't mean much, although they did sweep someone right after firing them. Um, it doesn't mean much. It's really just a scapegoat to kind of, you know, you know, seem like the front office is doing something about a bad start. Uh, but when you have that kind of culture that you're, you're not performing well, and it's just kind of expected to lose. When I played for the Minnesota Twins, we were really bad that year. Worst team in baseball. And we had fun. We had good team chemistry. But every time we went out there, we, we expected to lose because we, we weren't a good team, although we still had Major League Baseball talent. We had Brian Dozier on that team, Joe Maurer on that team. Uh, and when you start feeling like you're just a team that loses, this is what happens. I guess it, it's sort of similar with what you've seen you know, in Anaheim, where they've got a perennial MVP or MVP candidate, one in Mike Trout, now Shohei Otani, and they continue to miss, miss the playoffs. It just, I guess it does show you that it can't be one dude. Bryce Harper wins the MVP last year. They don't make the playoffs. He's been uh, unbelievable again this year, uh, and they've continued to be a sub-500 team. You mentioned the Mets. I'm glad you did because I want to segue there. They do own the best record in the National League, 37-19. and 19. They just took two of three from the Dodgers. Uh, Francisco Lindor is back, and he's typically a second-half player, but he's been tremendous in the first half. Pete Alonso, arguably the MVP of the league so far this year uh, in the National League. Starling Marte has been a perfect addition. Carlos Carrasco, um, a revitalizing year for his career. They've done all of this without Jacob deGrom and Max Scherzer now on the shelf and they continue to win ball games. Again, just taking two of three from the, the NL favorites, the, the Los Angeles Dodgers. How impressed have you been by this Mets team? Unbelievably. Because you always just kind of expect, especially as a New Jersey guy, you hear it's, you know, the Mets are just, they're going to crumble. That's what they do. And the thing is with this Mets ball club right now is they have the exact opposite of what you're looking at in the, Philly, in the Philadelphia ball club. It's a winning culture. It's not about who they have on the mound. Of course, would they love to have Max Scherzer go out there every fifth day and Jacob DeGrom? Of course they would. And they will eventually, hopefully, this season. And that makes this team even scarier. Uh, but they have a winning culture in Queens right now. And there's nothing stopping them. They're just, they, they go out there every night, to bit, regardless of who's on the mound, regardless of who's in the lineup. They go out there expecting to win the baseball game. And you're seeing it you know, time and time again with this club. The Dodgers have also been tremendous. And I don't want to make too much of a series in early June. But when you factor in... They were on the road. They didn't have Scherzer and DeGrom. So should these two teams meet in the postseason, if Scherzer and DeGrom are starting four of those seven games, why wouldn't you give the Mets a shot to beat the Dodgers? Is that a fair statement, even though it is, again, early on in this season? Yeah, but it, it, it's, it's early, but we're still playing two months of baseball. I mean, we pretty much know what these clubs are going to be like. 
uh, for the remainder of the season. And again, you talk about how scary it is. It's, you know, they've had Scherzer play, uh, but you haven't had DeGrom all year. Uh, it's, it's completely fair. Right now, the Mets are, in my opinion, the favorite to win uh, the National League because of how they play, the culture they have around them, and the confidence they have going up against a, a Los Angeles Dodgers team who's really, really good. Uh, and going on the road and taking two out of three. Um, I mean, you even have you know Dave Roberts pulling that move where he's trying to you know you know pitch a position player down only five runs rather than six because he's trying not to hurt his bullpen for the next day because he knows his team is just is 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 beating them. Uh, it's I think it's a very fair. I, I would give the nod to the Mets right now in any any matchup in the National League because they're just that good. Flipping things over to the American League. Last year the AL East was a juggernaut. This year, the AL East remains a juggernaut. Boston is at 500, which is respectable in a league that's had a ton of parity so far. They're 12 games out of first place because the Yankees have been so damn good at 39 and 15. They own baseball's best record. Their starting rotation has been tremendous, arguably overachieving. Not arguably. They have been overachieving what anyone could have expected. Nestor Cortez is a Cy Young candidate. Their worst ERA on the starting rotation is Jordan Montgomery at 302. Everyone else is sub three. Aaron Judge, MVP of the league so far uh, with 21 home runs, a 313 batting average, 42 RBIs, 44 runs, leads the league with a uh, 200 WRC+. This team has been absolute nails, top to bottom, lineup, starting rotation, bullpen. How infuriating is that as a Red Sox fan? Uh, you know, it's frustrating. I got to give it to you because the Red Sox haven't been play, haven't played that bad this year. Although they had a really tough start, they had a really good May. They look to have another good June, even though it's going to be on the road for the most part. But this Yankee ball club, and you know, this is why you know, on the Sorry We're Close podcast, where we talk some baseball, I've been picking the since day one, pretty much the Yankees and Mets to see each other in the World Series because they're just two teams that are playing unbelievable baseball. You know, from t- to have a have the worst ERA in your starting rotation at three hundred two in the AL East. Be, I don't think people understand how good that is and how ridiculous that is. You know, you're your fifth starter. You're just hoping he doesn't ruin your bullpen to get back to the top, especially in the AL East, a, a team where or a league or a division where you're going to face really good lineups uh, to, to have what they're doing from a starting rotation from a bullpen. And then obviously we expected the lineup to do well. Uh, I mean, it's going to be really tough to catch them the way they're playing. It's going to be really, really difficult. And you have three other really good teams in the AL East all fighting for playoff spots. Uh, it's it's the best division in baseball, in my opinion. How brilliant does Aaron Judge look turning down that, what was it? It was seven years, $213.5 million. And again, now the numbers he's putting up are so prolific to where he's on track to win his first MVP award. Where is this contract going to go <laughs> in terms of the millions? I mean, you got to be pushing a half a billion at this point. Uh, if, if he's showing that, not only is the production there with an average, the power numbers are there, and then his big bugaboo has been staying healthy, and he's shown so far, knock on wood, because no matter how you feel about any team, you never want to see players get hurt. But he has been the best player in baseball so far this year, and you would imagine making himself a ton of money along the way. Oh, He's going to make a tremendous amount of money. Bet on himself. I always respect the guys that go out there and say, well, listen, you know, yeah, turn down you know, $200 million and he said, no, I, I'm worth more than that. I'm going to go out there and bet on myself to do it. And he's proving it. Uh, he's going to see a tremendous amount of money. And another thing that people don't realize or forget sometimes is, although the production on the field is outrageous, he's probably, arguably, you know, with Shohei, probably the face of baseball. And I almost give him the nod as the face of baseball, at least in the United States, 
because you have a, such a huge market in New York. So being a, a Yankee is something that every baseball player, regardless of where you grew up, is cool to, to say you were once a Yankee. Uh, so he's got such a big, big market that you're going to make this Yankee club so much money even off the field rather than just on the field. Um, he's going to see a tremendous amount of money. And again, and I hope he does stay healthy. It's better for baseball. It's better for the Red Sox, better for the, the rivalry that we have. It's, it's, it, there's nothing bad from Aaron Judge being on the baseball field other than the Red Sox might be losing. Pat, are you aware of what photo is shown on your baseball reference profile? I'm not aware of it, no. What would you guess? What, which hat are you wearing? Um, if I had a guess, because I feel like most of them are the Mariners hats now. Yes. Uh, last, Seattle last Mariners. My Seattle yeah. Mariners. What was your style? How'd you end up in Seattle? What, what's? Uh, I got DFA'd by the Pirates and the Mariners claimed me uh, at the end of 2000 or the middle of 2017. And then that headshot was so good. Everyone was like, this is the one we got to use. I love that. So, so I am a Mariners fan. I'm from Seattle. And I that is just the annual pain that I go through every year of dealing mm-hmm. with the disappointment that they uh, they give me. But Julio Rodriguez has been as expected, if not better. Um, for a 21-year-old, he's hitting 274. He's got six homers, 24 RBIs, 24 runs scored, which is pretty good for an anemic offense. Um, he leads the league with 17 stolen bases. I think for myself and Mariners fans, it's obvious it's impressive on any metric, but when just a year ago, we saw Jared Kelnick come up to the big leagues with a similar pedigree, maybe not as high in terms of the superstar ceiling, but he still had that sort of profile, a top five prospect in all of baseball, and he struggled. And we see other prospects really struggle to hit major league pitching. And Julio, after a sort of a slow start out of the gate, every at-bat is competitive. He's had clutch moments. He's already hitting third in the Mariners order. The speed is there. How impressed have you been? Have you been keeping tabs a little bit, even though the Mariners are, are mostly irrelevant? Um, have you seen much of Julio so far? Yeah, I've, I've, I've certainly watched him because he is an exciting player. Uh, and you, you want to see these young guys continue, especially in Seattle. You know, Seattle's had such a, a tough, tough, you know, I mean, the longest drought in, in baseball right now for uh, playoff oh, appearances. Yeah, any sport. Yeah. No, it's fun. In any sport. Yeah. Yeah. It's sick. Yeah, I bet you love it. <laughs> so you know, listen, as you keep tabs, you want them to to kind of come together here. Uh, it's exciting to see what he does, and that's the other thing. And something you mentioned is again, as the average baseball fan might notice, not notice. You know, the guys that really, really watch. You're talking about competitive at bats. He, he's he is not afraid to take a good at bat. I remember back in 2000, I want to say 15 or 14, everyone was talking about Jackie Bradley Jr. when he first came up with the Red Sox and how he had this great walk against CC Sabathia. And it was because he battled against a, a very veteran pitcher uh, as a rookie lefty on lefty. Uh, and you see the same type of stuff from this guy in Seattle. He's just, he, he's, he's, he's out there and he's competing and he feels like he belongs. You see a lot of uh, rookies, myself included, when I first came up, you know, I was a first round draft pick in 2012 and I come up and you make, you, you make the big leagues more than they need to be. It's still baseball. You know, it's still the guy, they're very talented players, but they were very talented in AAA too. And they were once down there with you. So um, it's not too big for this guy. He's doing he's he's doing what he needs to and performing what he needs to do at, at a big stage in Seattle. And hopefully he's able to you know propel this team a little bit. They're not making the playoffs this year. I know you that know that, and I know that. But you know a little excitement in Seattle. You mentioned uh, that your World Series pick is a Subway Series. Yankees right now are six to one on win bet. The Mets eight to one to win the World Series. Just 
Just confirming, is that your World Series pick uh, as we continue to, to move to the month of June? As it stands right now, I just don't see... There's only one team, in my opinion, that can compete with the the Mets in the National League. It's the Dodgers right now. I mean, anything can happen in in uh, the playoffs, but you're talking about pitching wins you, you know championships. Right now, they're competing without their two best guys. And they're not just competing, they're winning. Uh, and you're going to put G- Jacob DeGrom and Max Scherzer you know, game one and two against any, you know, they're probably up 2-0. Uh, and then you talk about the Yankees starting pitching. It's just too good right now. And you're going to face really good lineups, you know, in the playoffs. But I just don't see right now the way these two teams are playing, how someone's going to go into a series and beat this club. You know, neither of these teams are going to be in one game wild cards, which I actually, I, I'm not sure if they, they threw that away after the new CBA. But, you know, in, in a series, it's going to be really difficult to beat both these clubs. So, yes, right now, the Yankees, Mets, they're going to the World Series, and I'd probably give the nod to the Yankees in the World Series. He is Pat Light, former Major League Baseball pitcher with the Red Sox and Twins, the host of the Sorry We're Closed podcast, and the new win bet brand ambassador. Follow him on Twitter at Pat underscore Light. Pat, it's been a pleasure, man. I hope this is the first of many chats. Thanks so much for your time and your insight. My pleasure. I can't wait for the next time. A big thanks to Pat. Look forward to having Did you win? A big thanks to Pat, and look forward to having him back on the show very soon. Uh, As the baseball season continues to ramp up, once we get through the Stanley Cup finals and these NBA finals, it's going to be baseball uh, heavy as we gear towards NFL training camp. Also, again, a big thanks to Jonathan Von Tobel. Um, Let's get to a promo and a winning pick and get on out of here. Announcing the party with DJ Diesel promotion. That's Shaq Diesel. All WinBet users can bet $100 on the NBA finals or in the virtual casino and be entered to win into a prize drawing to attend a DJ Diesel performance at the Encore Beach Club at the Encore Las Vegas. You also get a meet and greet with Shaq when you attend this summer. Go to winbet.com or download the WinBet app for official rules and details. Winning pick time, trying to go 2-0 and to start the month of June. I'm going to the baseball diamond and taking the red-hot New York Mets Plus 103 on the money line on the road against the Padres. Yes, they're on the road. Yes, they played on the road. They had to travel. They just went down I-5 from Los Angeles to San Diego and Petco Park. The Mets ranked third in WRC Plus with the Padres ranked 21st. A huge discrepancy in terms of the damage these lineups have been doing so far this season. And you dive a little bit deeper uh, to the situational matchups. The Padres ranked 25th in WRC Plus versus righties at home. Getting down the minutia, that's against Carlos Carrasco. Uh, and the Mets rank sixth in WRC Plus against lefties on the road. So they've been tremendous against lefties, and I'm not trusting Blake Snell just because he had one good start last week. We'll call it a wash between Carlos Carrasco and Blake Snell. The Mets hold a huge lineup advantage. I will take New York at plus money, plus 103 on the money line on Monday evening against the San Diego Padres. That's going to do it. Again, big thanks to both of our guests, Jonathan Von Tobel and Pat Light. We will see you on Thursday right here on Bet to Win.